Coming to you live from the Megaloop Lab Studios, this is another episode of Through Thick and Thin. I'm Joe, your host, repping the metropolis of Hampstead in the 603, where we have already gone over the river and through the woods. If you have ever had a traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, medical diagnosis, stroke, and you have thought about returning to work full-time or part-time, and you are on SSI or SSDI, this is the show you want to listen to. Our guest today will navigate the waters of what you need to know in order to return to work and not get flagged by the IRS or Social Security. He walks us through everything. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Fasten those seatbelts. Here we go. Michael McCullough, Program Manager with Ticket to Work Program. Hey, nice to meet you, Michael. Thank you for coming on the podcast through Thick and Thin. How are things for you tonight? Things are well, Joe. Thank you for having me as well. And I'm glad to be here. That's that's for sure. You got it. And where are you from, Michael? I am from Yuba City, California, which is Northern California, about an hour north of Sacramento. An hour north of Sacramento. So how far from San Francisco? Uh, under 100 miles, about probably two and a half hours with traffic. So about two and a half hours from San Francisco. I took a peek at your Facebook page. It sounds like and looks like you are a big 49ers fan. I actually was at the game yesterday against the Cardinals. I have season tickets. And uh, yeah, part of my woes for not just the season, but the this year and the last year and a half overall is just all the losing going on with uh, the pandemic and also my beloved 49ers losing almost every single game. So, yeah, but, you know, other than that, uh, we stay positive and just keep moving forward. Well, Michael, I had my fingers crossed that once we generously gave you Jimmy Garoppolo from my beloved New England Patriots that the Niners were going to do amazing. And I'm sorry to see that that has not happened. Uh, Well, anytime you want to take him back, you can. We'll take a first round pick for him instead. That almost happened this year, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. We'll we'll keep our new quarterback. Uh, He is quite the, not quite amazing yet, but he has a lot of potential amongst all the rookies. I think he's doing the best. Yes, he is. He's got a little bit of that, a uh, little bit of Brady in him, a little, uh, little aggressive. And I like to see that in a quarterback, that's for sure. Yeah, he's got some swagger, and he's definitely a pocket passer like Brady. I don't think we'll see him taking off for any 25-yard runs anytime soon. No, no, and that would be a good thing for the longevity of his career not to. Definitely. Um, Well, Michael, again, welcome to the show, to the podcast tonight. We are going to take a slight um, turn in in the road here just to let the listeners know. Normally, we're talking to people about their relationships, but this is a very special podcast because we are going to talk to you 
about returning to work after a spinal cord injury, stroke, other traumatic event, a medical diagnosis that puts you out of work for some time, and you are going to help us navigate the waters of what we need to do in order to start earning income again. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. I have to admit that I looked at the information on one government website and I probably saved it to my iPad. I was so confused as to what I could and could not do. Um, so we're really grateful that you're able to join us tonight. It honestly is my pleasure. And it's so sad to say that for me, it equals job retention because information that you receive from uh, different online sources, print sources, whatever have you, and they never really answer everyone's questions. Uh, typically, when you get this information, you have more questions than you have answers. So that's why I'm glad to hop on this podcast and help navigate some of these questions that and uh, provide some answers that we're going to go through. This is great, Michael. And I think just to let our listeners know that you are joining us because you had to return to the workforce one day, or at least I'm assuming you did. Um, you're in a wheelchair. Did you suffer a spinal cord injury at one point? Yeah, I did. Uh, in uh, July 20th of 1996, I was in a uh, car accident. And, and what happened to you? Uh, T7, thoracic 7 level, uh, incomplete. Uh, do not have any uh, motor at all, but I do feel uh, pretty... Eh, I do feel um, some things below my line of, of injury, but still relying on my wheelchair for everyday use. So you're T7, so you have full functioning arms and hands and and whatnot? Correct, yes. Great. And what was your recovery like after your accident and injury? It was hell. It was literal hell. Um, you know, in rehab, it's... Um, in, in rehab, it was... Uh, you think it's hell in rehab... And then you get home and then you realize the gates of hell have just opened up. Um, because in rehab, you are in a protected environment. You're doing the work and you're working very, very hard each day while you're in rehab for the most part. Um, but when you get home, that's when the shock and all really hits that, you know, now this is really your life and what you decide to do with it is on your shoulders amongst all the grief and everything else that you're going through at that time so it's just a perfect storm of emotions and uh, things that occur in a very short period of time when you get back home so you know it's not for the faint of heart but it is for the people who want to get better and uh, figure out a way of life 
that's going to continue to make a positive impact in the person they want to become. That's right. And what we don't realize until we get home is that when we were in rehab and in the hospital, we were living in a bubble and there were people around us 24-7 that could take care of us. When we get home, much like having a plan for your retirement, you need a plan to be able to live again when you get home and then you're rehabbing because the rehab never ends. I mean, you're always trying to learn how to do things that you couldn't do before. You're always trying to gain strength in areas either that were affected by the injury or those that weren't. And it's just a never ending. I don't call it a battle. It's more of a game because there are days when you lose big and there are days when you win big. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, there's days when this game, you think life is dealing from the bottom of the deck sometimes, you know, but, um, that's all part and parcel of um, waking up every day and figuring out what the next move is going to be and how you're going to succeed uh, or plan to succeed as best you can. Right, and having a positive attitude every day makes a huge difference. Um, Michael, before your accident, what were you doing? Were you working at the time? Uh, yes, I was actually, I was always a manual labor guy. I worked as a cowboy for several years at a ranch, and um, I did all of that. I, school was just not my thing at all. It was pretty smart, but it was just, not, I was not a very good student. Uh, I always said that the fish were always biting more than me studying, so I always went fishing. But um, right before my accident, I was working at a lumber mill pulling chain, stacking units of lumber. That was my day-to-day -day job right before my accident. And then your accident happened and you were obviously, I'm assuming you were out of work for some time. Absolutely. Um, you cannot pull green chain out of a wheelchair and lumber mills are just not wheelchair accessible at all. Not even the office. The office uh, was a single wide office that didn't even have a ramp. So that was not going to be uh, in my future at all. And so it took four years of getting some getting some normalcy back, getting through the trauma and uh, the stress and just the, the, what the new normal is and how to navigate everything. So it took about four years to finally get some things pieced together and start on my new journey uh, post uh, wheelchair. And how did you find information at that time was somebody helping you out or did you have to find out everything on your own i actually um it started actually funny enough that i received a dog and a puppy by the name of shelby and shelby um i needed to get a letter to have her in my apartment as a canine companion 
And so um, I was directed to an independent living center, which would be able to help me get a letter together to have my dog with me in the apartment. Once I stumbled upon the independent living center, then I started to understand there were other services available to people, people with disabilities. And so as I started learning more about the Center for Independent Living, um, I thought it would be a good idea just to volunteer. And so I volunteered there for three weeks and then they offered me a position. Um, I declined the position because I did not want anything to affect my benefits. And then they told me that if I did not accept the position, I could not volunteer there anymore. And so I was faced with that decision of what to do. So I went ahead and took the position. It was a 20 hour a week position. I think I started out at $10.40 an hour. And were you flying blind at the time in terms of it affecting your benefits um, and not knowing that it may affect it? Or did you get some information that puts your mind at ease? Well, back in 2000, uh, the Ticket to Work legislation had just been signed in to uh, law. And back in 99 it was. But I had no idea about it. And so as many, many thousands, if not millions of people, um, I did not know what to do. So I just went to work. And anytime I got a letter from Social Security, I filed it in my file, in my file cabinet under G for garbage can. I did not, I did not even open up the letters. Um, my thought process at that time was out of sight, out of mind and which was the wrong process to have for you listeners out there please do not do what i did in the beginning it does not end well at all so i didn't know what was going on and then i finally received a call from social security that i had uh, an overpayment on my ssi benefits and that's when i started to figure out that i really had no idea what to do when I went back to work. And so let's back up for just one second, Michael. When most people have an accident, they stop working and uh, what do they do? They file for some sort of benefits with the government so that they can receive some money. What are the options for people that want to file but don't want to return to work immediately? Yeah, great question, Joe. Uh, so the, what's the first thing that's going to happen is the new patient coordinator, if you do not have private insurance, the new patient coordinator is going, going to help you file for benefits because they want to have you insured so they can get paid for services rendered, which makes sense. So um, usually what happens first is uh, people will get uh, approved for state disability, SDI, state disability insurance, if their state offers it. Not every state has this. California does. And uh, with that, you may get linkage to Medi-Cal 
or what's referred to Medicaid at the federal level. And then you would actually also get uh, signed up for either SSI or SSDI, so Supplemental Security Income or Social Security Disability Insurance. And both of those come with medical insurance as well. SSI is Medicaid and then SSDI is Medicare after a two-year waiting period. Okay, so that's really the difference between those two is one is uh, Medicare and one is Medicaid. Uh, what is the other? I mean, how does somebody qualify for one and not the other? And can they get both? Yeah, so I'll take the very first question first. So, yes, they can both receive both. I received both myself, and I had worked uh, and paid into the trust fund through taxes paid. So I received both SSDI and SSI. So it's based off of your uh, FICA, Federal Insurance Contribution Act. So that's that big chunk that comes out of your paycheck. That is the federal withholdings, and that's what helps to pay for Social Security retirement and or disability benefits. So if you've worked and you've paid into the FICA for years, some years, and you have what's called insured quarters of credits, enough to be provided and paid an SSDI payment, that's one route you go. The other route is if you haven't worked or if you are younger when you become disabled, you have no work earnings, then you would be uh, eligible to receive supplemental security income, SSI. So the SSI federal benefit rate is around 733 or something around there. Yeah, I haven't looked at the new numbers that are coming out. So if your SSDI is below that, let's say you got $400 in SSDI, you would receive SSI to supplement the SSDI to get you up to that federal benefit rate. And if your state has a supplement, like California does, you'd receive the supplement on top of that in lieu, well, before in lieu of uh, food stamps. And you're, you, these numbers that you're throwing out, Michael, these are per month. I'm sorry, what was the last part? These are per month when you say 733, is that correct. per month? Okay. Yeah, correct. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, we could all just go to the Cayman Islands on $733 a month. I mean, we're rich. Yeah, but when you live in California, New York, Chicago, and Connecticut, you know, these other areas where the cost of living is very high, and there is very limited uh, amount of accessible and um, wheelchair accessible and accessible housing, that becomes a problem really fast. And I need to apologize to you and the listeners, Michael. I have a very dry sense of humor for a Northeasterner um, that was meant to be funny. And I know it did not come across as funny. No, 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 no. I, I, I actually agree with you if, you know, if you lived in Texas or New Mexico or 
in Oklahoma, along those areas, you could actually semi-quasi-survive. Cayman Islands sounds better to me, but, you know, it sounds a lot better to me, actually, especially in November now, I'm imagining me down in the Cayman Islands getting my tan on. But, um, yeah, so it's just it's one of those deals that when you become disabled in the blink of an eye, for the, for, for the most part, your life is turned upside down and shaken, and then you're dumped out, and then you have to figure it out for yourself, for the most part, uh, what your next steps are. But you could have gone from a highly lucrative career as a PG&E lineman, whatever have you, and then become paralyzed or have a stroke. And now you need to figure out what you're going to do because you're accustomed to a certain quality of life through your work that you no longer have access to. So that's when the real work begins. Oh, sure. And people have, I've seen it all. They, you know, we've got families, we've got, you know, places to pay for, cars to pay for. It can really, if you're the primary income earner, it can have devastating effects on everything surrounding your life. But Michael, everything. it does. So you can qualify for SSI or SSDI, or in some instances, both, and qualify for your state's uh, supplemental as well, if your state offers that, which again, is not going to make you rich, but at least it helps people with having some money come in if they are not able to work. Exactly. Uh, the state supplemental insurance is usually going to get you paid uh, and easiest qualified for first. And that'll help you, you know, pay your bills while you're in, you know, the hospital or in rehab. And uh, while that's going on, then your patient coordinator and your family and friends can help people apply for SSI and SSDI. And what, what I is... would also go ahead, uh, Joe, just for a second, what I would always suggest is don't wait until the state disability runs out before applying for the other programs. That's where a lot of people make some mistakes at. Apply for all three at the same time. And Social Security will let you know what you're eligible to receive at that moment because the state disability only lasts for a year. Once that runs out, things on your benefit side from Social Security can and will change. But don't wait until the last second to, to apply for Social Security benefits. That's really solid advice. So you can apply for all three. And what is the waiting period for SSI and SSDI? Is it two years for both? No, that's for Medicare. So once you're um, once you have your date of onset, it's two years after your date of onset. Actually, uh, twenty four. So two years. It's actually twenty nine months. So date of onset is the day you become disabled. Date of eligibility is the day you're eligible for the benefits. So from the date 
of eligible for benefits is two years for Medicare unless you have a significant impairment. You would think paralysis is a significant impairment, but they make you wait the two years for that unless you have like uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, end-stage renal failure, then you're fast-tracked uh, in given uh, Medicare uh, at the time of applying and becoming eligible for SSDI benefits. And that fast-track is what, 18 months? No, um, the fast-track would be the, the, the month that you're eligible for benefits. Okay, so that's a lot sooner in most cases. Exactly, yes. Okay, so there is some hope out there. People can start having money come in immediately to help them pay bills and pay medical expenses and whatnot. And then, unfortunately, for some of us, you know, we have our accident or our medical diagnosis that prevents us from working, much like you did, for several years. And then we decide that one day we either have to or want to return to the workforce. What is the very first thing that we should do, Michael? Contact your WIPA provider, W-I-P-S and Paul A. WIPA is funded by Social Security Administration. The WIPA programs, and they're all across the country and in Puerto Rico, allow for you to have access to free benefits planning. So the benefit planners are the ones who can guide you step by step in terms of how many hours a week you want to work, what your rate of pay is. Based on that information, they can let you know what's going to happen to your benefits, your cash benefits, and your medical benefits. So that's the first step. Even if you're thinking about going to work, but you're not sure, contact the, with the WIPAs and go to Google, type in WIPA, benefit planning, and they'll take you right to their site. And you can then go ahead and contact that 800 number and you will be placed with a WIPA that would be in your area, that would serve your county. That's the first step, is understanding what you do not understand. Sadly, when you go to work, it's a whole different world navigating Social Security and their benefits and the work incentives contained within the benefits. That's where the benefit planners come in at. That's your first step. And so what are some of the things that the benefit planners go over with you once you get somebody on the phone? Awesome question, Joe. You're honestly, you're really good at this. You have great questions. So the first and foremost is they're going to go over your cash benefits. So if you were to earn X amount per month, this is what's going to happen or not happen to your cash benefits. That's number one. Number two, they're going to go through your Medicare and Medicaid. They're going to let you know, okay, if you earn X amount, this is what's going to happen to your medical insurance. The other thing that they're going to look at is any other benefits that you're receiving. So if you're receiving HUD, subsidized housing, Section 8, 
they're going to go through all of that with you as well and let you know if you're eligible for an earned income disregard, if your state has that, which it should, but they're going to go through all of that stuff with you as well if you receive uh, SNAP benefits or you receive CalFresh benefits or food stamps. They go through all of that with you as well. So they are the one-stop shop to getting you understanding your basics of going back to work and your earnings and how earnings may or may not impact your benefits. So all of those can be affected just by you accepting employment and taking an income. They can be. Uh, some based on earnings will not be. It's all based off of earnings. And um, so that's why I say it, it may or may not be affected because it's all based off of earnings. If you were to earn $800 a month and you receive SSDI, you're not going to experience any change to your SSDI benefits at all. If you receive $800 a month in earnings and you receive SSI, you're going to expect a change to your benefits. Those two programs have different work incentives attached to them. And that's where people get into trouble, myself included, in the beginning. Uh, that's why in the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that I received a call from Social Security that I had an overpayment. That overpayment was $5,000. And I did you, not know what was going on. So you received that phone call, and, and what does that mean? Then, then what do you have to do? Well, then you're making payment arrangements, and then they're deducting out of your small check you get anyway, they're deducting roughly 10% of your overpayment, unless you could provide a financial hardship letter that could reduce the amount that they withhold or if you do not agree with their determination you can request a waiver or you can request a reconsideration because you have additional proof of your wages or any other like there's a lot of different things that could trigger overpayments on the SSI side of the house and so there's a couple different avenues you can go down once you have an overpayment so do you know offhand if there are really kind of ceilings or thresholds that you would have to hit in order to be flagged for either SSI or SSDI? Is it that simple or is every case completely different? No, not every, not every case is completely different. So for SSI, if you're a straight SSI, you get paid on the first of the month. You receive straight Medicaid. Anything you earn over $85 is going to be counted. And there's a, a methodology that they use, a formula. So the first $85 you earn, you get to keep that. That's excluded. Anything over that? For every $2 you've earned, they deduct a dollar off of your uh, SSI benefits. So a quick example is if you were to earn $885 a month, 
the first $85 is subtracted from 800, then 800 is divided by two. For every $2 you earn, your benefits are deducted by $1. So 800 divided by two is 400. 400 is now what's called your countable earned income. And that amount will be subtracted from your SSI check. Wait a minute. So it's like a 50% tax unless I'm doing my math wrong. Well, it's also with the SSI program, you're better off working and then receiving SSI benefits. So an example, just really quickly, let's say you received $735 in SSI per month, okay? You with me, Joe? I'm still with you here. Alrighty. Now let's say you earned $885, right? Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen to your benefits and what's going to be your new overall income? So before you began working, you have $735, okay? You Now you start working. So $885 minus 85 equals 800 divided by 2 equals 400. That's the amount that will be deducted from your SSI check. So... 735 minus 400 equals 335. This is your new SSI amount, okay? Now this is when you people usually start getting a little bit freaked out. They're like, well, I have to live off of $335. Well, you also earned 885. So 885 plus 335 equals 1220 so so i'm not freaking out as much but i'm still looking at the math scratching my head saying well i was making you know 700 dollars a month without working at all and now working all these hours and i'm earning you know 1200 dollars a month which is considerably more it's 50 percent more uh more than that but um there's still kind of docking some of my pay. Um, maybe you can better explain that. Well, you know, taxes do play a role in this. I'm not going to say that it's perfect. It's not. But your gross earnings would net you, sorry, you, you would, your gross difference from working to not would be $485 more each month. Okay. So even if you were to take out taxes on $885, you're looking at about, call it $90 in taxes. You're still making $390 net more. Hi, it's me again. We'll get back to the show in just a second. You will never hear commercials on this program. Instead, we operate on the value for value model. This means we rely on listeners like you to provide donations in order to offset production costs and help pay for the artists who donate their artwork for each show. They are part of the disability ecosystem that we are creating. If you're finding value, and it can be as little as 5 or $10 per episode, 
please send us a note along with your feedback to joe at avira.com. That's A-V-E-E-R-A dot com. And now back to the show. But here's the other thing, though, Joe, and I'm not changing the subject at all. It does not sound like a huge difference in terms of the numbers, and I'm just using very, very small numbers. I'm using part, part, part-time work. But the main, the huge difference is your self-esteem, your self-respect, your motivation, everything changes. This is the one thing that I always mention because it has changed me, it has changed my life, it has changed every client. I was a benefit planner with the WIPA program for 10 years. So every person that I've come across, once I show them these tools and they actually go back to work and they get a job, the light comes back on in their eyes because they found themselves again. That is exactly what has happened for me and that is exactly what I teach when I work with my clients today is they do have, there are opportunities out there. They do have a choice. They can work or they cannot work. Now, if you are a C1, C2 tetraplegic, employment opportunities aren't going to be as prevalent as someone with an able body, right? Hey, wait a minute, Michael. We can always become podcasters. <laughs> no, you know what? Hey, that is the one thing, Joe, that is leading the way is technology. It started kind of with dragging dictation, texting to talk, typing you know, with your voice. Uh, a really, really good friend of mine, uh, he's, he's unfortunately, he's passed now. He was a C5 quad, beautiful soul. And he could use dragon dictation. And he was up to 110 words a minute typing using that. And he was able to go back to work. And um, so technology has blown the door open for podcasters, for a lot of different people to have access to jobs that they didn't know they had access to. And the other thing I'll say is COVID. COVID is a, is a monster. We all know that this whole new normal thing we're in. COVID, one of the, the few things that's done in a positive way, it has shown employers that employees can still can work from home and still be productive. And they implored technology to allow them to do that, to work from home and be productive and, you know, um, still, still being able to provide services to their clients, to their customers from home. Once that happened, we saw a shift and we saw more and more people who didn't think they would go to work return to the workforce because they couldn't leave the house too easy. 
But if they could find a remote job, they were really, really excited about that opportunity. So it is a whole different ball game out there now. And technology plays a huge part in that. And I'm sure you'll you'll have tech uh you'll have um opportunities down the road for other recordings to work with other people around that new technology and uh but that's the one thing that I could think of off the top of my head that positive that has come from COVID is the technology to allow people to work from home and still be able to uh, provide services and earn a living from home. Yes, COVID. you're absolutely right. COVID has opened up many doors. If there is a silver lining behind all of this, it is that. And technology, I'm not going to give a shameless plug for Dragon because they don't pay me any money, but I will give them a shameless plug. Their technology is amazing. For anyone listening that relies on their voice to provide uh, written uh, communications through texting or emailing or note-taking, Dragon made by Nuance Communications right here in Massachusetts. They uh, were purchased by Microsoft earlier this year. They do make amazing products. Absolutely, absolutely. And so we were talking about the benefit of going back to work. And you're right, Michael, it is much more than just a paycheck. It is that self-esteem. It's the self-worth. It's connecting with people again. It's opening up your mind to um, new ways of thinking and new opportunities. So doing the math, you know, that what you're making is a great deal more than um, what you would be making without receiving the benefit. So you're still getting that. And the uh, fringe or intangible benefits that we just touched upon, um, you, can't, you're, you can't put a price on that. No matter how much you earned before or how much you're earning today, there's no comparison. No, it's not just a check. You know, it, it runs a lot deeper than that. It's relationships, you know, when you go out in public, the first two questions you're asked is, what's your name? What do you do for a living? And when you're not working at all, when you're disabled, it's really hard to answer that second question. And for me, it was very, very, and just me personally, it was very, very embarrassing. I was very embarrassed. I was filled with a lot of shame and guilt because I did not do anything at all but um, stab myself in the back repeatedly. I was really good at that. But um, so it's a huge thing. It's like when you go back to work, it's not just the check. It's the relationships that you start getting from going to work, being able to get back into the community, going out for dinner on a Friday night, meeting up with coworkers just to complain about the boss and have that social interaction again. The One of the biggest things that I missed when I was not working at all is every day was the same day. It was Groundhog Day. Fridays had no special meaning. Mondays had no special meaning. 
uh, my friends would talk about their bosses and talk about work, talk about their jobs, co-workers, whatever have you. I was not a part of those conversations at all. I was just on the sidelines. And that broke me down and that broke my spirit in such a way that I was cast even further into depression because I had nothing to lend to the conversation. And um, when that happens, you know, it is truly a despairing moment in time. And you live in that space, and even after the conversations are over and everyone's gone back home, you still live in that space of not having anything to contribute. That's how I felt personally. That's why when I started going back to work, and I started part-time, 20 hours a week, $10 an hour. And then from then I built up my career and became a benefit planner for 10 years. And now I'm the program manager of an employment network and uh, helping people every single day return back to work who are looking to go back to work or just have the questions answered. But uh, it's, it's everything. Work has allowed me to have a great quality of life. And I think it can really add a lot of positivity, getting someone their mindset and their mind back from, you know, going through a severe, severe accident like a stroke or spinal cord injury employment can have a massive, massive impact on someone's recovery. And that's why I was so glad to get the call from you to join your podcast, because I think it is a huge part of recovery. Having said that, though, does that mean as soon as you become paralyzed, you go and get a job? Maybe for some people they can. I couldn't. I went four years, and everyone's recovery is different, but my hope is that employment, if you can work, is a part of the recovery just as much as resistance bands, just as much as weight releases. It's a huge part of who we are as a person, and that cannot be overlooked. Uh, and sadly, it is severely overlooked. And and why do you think that is the case, Michael? Why do people after an accident or medical diagnosis, you know, why do we hold off from getting a job? Why do we, why, what, what makes us afraid? We're told not to work. We're told, I actually go back to, I've gone back to Santa Clara Valley Medical Center where I had my rehab at and I met pre-COVID and I've met with the guys and gals who are newly disabled. I said, well, what do you think about returning back to work? And they smile, all of them. And they said, well, we don't have to. They told us we don't have to work anymore. So this is the population of people, for the most part, 
who were working, who have work ethics instilled in them as children, and work up until they became disabled, and all of a sudden that gets shifted. Caseworkers, doctors, nurses, families, friends, lawyers, whatever have you, they tell them, no, 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 you don't have to work. You're not going to go on benefits. And so there is a shift that happens to no fault of their own. It's a, a shift that happens. They think, well, I'm disabled, so therefore I cannot work. And just like that, everything changes in their mind of, do I work, do I not? Once they found out that they get their minimal needs met through benefits, that mentality changes. And, you know, when I talk to people every day, I ask them, why are you going back to work? And they tell me, everyone told me not to, but I know there's something else out there for me. I want something else. I want my life to mean something. Or sometimes, Joe, honestly, it is, for a lot of people, it is just fighting the self-worth again. Um, a quick story, just in 10 seconds, 15 seconds. I always hated Christmas. I could never buy gifts for anyone. Now, if your listeners are out there who are on a beyond stretched fixed income, maybe you know what that feels like. To have Christmas come along and people are bringing you gifts for yourself, but you have nothing to give them. How did it make you feel? For me, I was beyond sad. I was just in a in a very, very sad, morose, dark place. And because I've, I've always been a giver, and when I cannot do that for anyone else or even myself, it affected me in a huge, huge way. So the holidays don't mean the same for people who are not in a position to, you know, give presents or bring something to Thanksgiving dinner. Some people, because of the benefits, they can't even afford to bring over a stuffing. They can't afford it. When you're in that position, it's hard to feel positive. You know, birthday parties for the three-year-old daughter or son. They're so, not going to Chuck E. Cheese pizza. You know, they can't afford it. So what is your advice to people that are in that dark place where, you know, they don't have the self-worth and they just cannot motivate themselves to even start to look for a job? For me, it started with volunteering, Joe, honestly. I've always loved helping people. Through helping people, I was actually able to find a way to help myself. But um, that is one of the things that I did. I volunteered. And just to get out of the house, because when you become disabled, your house sometimes becomes a prison. You're on TV, you're watching the TV all day long. 
watching Maury Povich DNA results shows. I don't know what you're doing. But me, I was watching TV all day long. I did not care. I went to bed at 4 or 5 in the morning sometimes. Didn't matter. I wasn't going anywhere the next day anyway. But even if you're not ready to go to work, if you could volunteer at a shelter to walk a dog, pet, or brush a dog out, something like that, or go to the library and help people learn how to read, they have a literacy, literacy programs at libraries. If you could find a way to give back, I think that would be an amazing thing for people to just get in touch with themselves again. You know, one of the things I'll say is that, and I've found this out over my professional career, and this is the absolute truth for the majority of people I speak to, Joe, we're the first ones to stab ourselves in the back. We're the last ones to pat ourselves in the back. There's a big difference. Sometimes you just need to stop beating yourself up, putting barriers in front of yourself, and start getting in that habit of starting to remove barriers and find the change to become the change. And pat yourself in the back that you've survived this long now we're just getting ready to find a space to do better and launch into something better for you and for your family and for your friends down the line. So volunteering was a huge thing for me. It opened up my eyes to a lot. And then I started going back to work just part-time. Did not want to lose my benefits. And then when I was ready to go to work full-time, I knew that I was going to transition off of benefits, but I would was going to make more, so I was okay with that, and I would have, oh, the last thing, the biggest thing with transitioning off of benefits, if there's listeners out there who are looking to do that, better health insurance. Medicaid and Medi-Cal, sorry, Medicaid and Medicare are great, because that's what you know, and it helps you pay for prescriptions, doctor visits, whatever have you. But when you get employer-sponsored benefits, when you get real dental insurance, when you get real vision insurance, when you get real urologist, that is an absolute game changer. Yeah, that is really amazing advice, Michael, from start to finish, from really getting yourself motivated to just start volunteering. And I think anyone can do that, or, or just about everyone can do that, regardless of what level of injury you have, if it's spinal cord or stroke, there's always something you can do to help others. And once you Absolutely. start, and once you start down that path, you know, it opens up doors just like it did for you for somebody to return to the workforce. And the, the examples we were going over before, the numbers for, let's you know say, for example, you earn $885 and your benefit is $700 a month. Let's say you're an executive or you know, a, a, a high paid person and now your income is going to be significantly more than that. So I assume you're just taking whatever 
income you have and now you're taking actually you know what i shouldn't assume things maybe you should walk us through that just so that we know and i'm not trying to guess here so throw, throw out a number how much are you getting in ssi or ssdi so let's just use round numbers let's say somebody's getting a thousand dollars a month through their paid benefit let's say their new job pays I know five thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's pretty easy. So, um, if you're receiving a thousand dollars, let's say you live in the state of California, where you almost get a thousand dollars a month in SSI because of the state supplement that's on top of the federal rate. So, if you're receiving a thousand dollars, anytime you earn what's called uh, what we call the break-even point. Well, you've earned enough to, to, to plant your SSI check. You've hit the break-even point, so no more SSI. So let's say the SSI amount is 945 times 2 plus 85. So as soon as you earn above $1,975 a month gross, you're not going to receive any SSI at all, which is great. What would you rather have? Eight seventy-five, or five thousand dollars. I'm not materialistic, but I do like a full tank of gas. I do like to see the refrigerator full of food, the cabinets full of food, and if I want to go out to eat on a Friday night, I don't have to worry about what bill is not going to get paid, right? So, that's the big difference on the SSI side. Now, before I go to the SSDI side, what about the medical side? The Medi-Cal would be affected. Uh, there is uh, several different Medi-Cal programs, sorry, Medicaid programs out there. Uh, the Working Disabled Program, the, Medi- the Medicaid 250% Working Disabled Program, that allows people to earn up to right around $58,000 a year and keep their Medicaid benefits. And you'd be paying a, a monthly premium not share of cost it's a premium and that's based off of your earning and your premium could be as much as three hundred dollars a month but if you're earning five grand a month it's not too bad at all in terms of paying for your health insurance Uh, the other part of that is if you're earning a significant amount it's a pretty good chance you're going to have employer-sponsored benefits as well so you would be in a position to let your Medicaid go, which that's what I have done, um, just because I, I could because of my earnings. But um, now on the SSDI side of thing, if you've not worked at all, you would receive a trial work period, but that's nine months of paid benefits. Your SSDI benefits are paid, regardless of the amount of money that you've earned. So whether you've earned $5,000 a month or $10,000 a month, you'd keep all of your SSI, sorry, all of your SSDI payments. So if you were receiving $1,000 a month in SSDI, you would keep that for nine months. Then at the ninth month, the 10th month actually, Social Security is gonna look and see if you're earning what's called substantial gainful activity 
So for 2022, that number is going to be $1,350. So if you've earned more than $1,350, which five grand is that, then you're going to get paid three additional grace period months, and then your benefits will be suspended. Not terminated, just suspended. Your Medicare would continue for approximately 92 months, so seven years, nine months. That's how long your Medicare typically would last for after you transitioned off of SSDI benefits. Okay, so you're now earning money, and is there anything you have to do in terms of notifying Social Security, or is this all done automatically? Do you have to fill out paperwork? Yeah. Yeah, so you definitely want to definitely want to report your wages. Do not do what a younger version of myself did and not notify them. The easiest way is to go on to online to ssa.gov, and you want to start your what's called a my ssa.gov account. So if you go on to ssa.gov and you click sign in or sign up to my SSA.gov account. Click that, you wanna sign up for that, and then you can actually report your wages online, right there. And everything is verified, and you'll get a copy confirming that you've reported your wages for the month. If you receive SSI, you could download the app, you can report your wages on the app, or you can call it in on their uh, toll-free number. That toll-free number is different from the, um, the national regular number if you have questions about benefits. So those are the ways you can also fax it into your local office. And also if you want, after COVID, hopefully, you can also go into the office and report them that way as well. Main thing is get them reported, get receipts that you've reported your wages. And you mentioned previously that if you're collecting SSDI, you go on the trial period for nine months. And let's say you're doing that. Is that nine consecutive months or would they stack months if you worked two months here, three months there, another month somewhere else, like at another point in time? But they, how does that work? Yeah, so you have five years to complete nine trial period level months. So let's say you work three months and then for the, the fourth month you got sick. Not with COVID, we don't want that to happen, but you got sick. And then the fifth month you're actually able to go back to work. So they would not count any month that is below trial period level earnings. So whatever the trial work period level earnings are, and I think it is going to be, I want to say it's nine fifty for this year coming up. I have to double check right now. Um, period level earnings, two thousand twenty one. That is going to be. Um, 940 so any month that you've earned below 940 that month will not count so if you have a month that you earn $800 that month is not going to count any month that you have 
earned more than 940, that month will count. Okay. And when you are earning, it's a similar calculation for what you described previously, where if you are earning $5,000 a month, hypothetically, then um, you're going to have certain amounts that are deducted. Is that is that true for SSDI as well? Oh, so yeah, so the calculation is, is a lot different for SSDI than it is SSI. Great question. You're very astute, my man. Um, so Thank they you. don't have, uh, you're very welcome. They don't have the calculation methodology for SSDI that they do for SSI. Having said that, and now you're gonna open up this whole other ball of wax, but we're gonna go there. They have something after a trial work period called impairment-related work expenses, subsidies, special conditions. All of those things can offset how much of your countable income Social Security would recognize. And that, my friend, is for a whole other podcast. That would take so much time in and of itself to go over, but what your listeners can do, go to my best friend, Google, and you can type in impairment-related work expenses. You can also type in subsidies and special conditions for SSDI. And that would open up a lot of great work incentives for people to understand and learn more information about. So basically, if you're earning you know, any amount of money and you're on SSDI, you can then take whatever expenses you have in a nutshell that are related to your impairment and working and deduct that from the amount that you're making, which means that you're, you know, you're, the number that you show the government is going to be a lot less. Exactly. So let's not use the $5,000 amount. Let's use a, a $1,500 amount. Okay. So if you were to earn $1,500 a month gross, but you're spending $300 a month out of your own pocket, your, your countable income is going to be $1,200. $1,200 is below the substantial gainful activity amount. So you would actually keep your SSDI benefits. That is, in a nutshell, how it works. It's just like a, a business. You have your gross sales minus all your deductions. And that's then what the IRS counts. So same thing. If you have impairment-related work expenses, they get to, you would get to deduct those as well and whatever's the remainder from your gross earnings minus your IRWIs, what we call IRWIs, impairment-related work expenses, whatever the difference is, that the amount that Social Security would count against your check if you were to receive it or not. Excellent. And so you're working, and you mentioned something about a 72-month mark that now your um, Medicare benefit is... Uh, goes yeah, away. So, that, so that's, does that that's go away permanently, or how does that work? That's ninety-two months, um, and that varies upon when substantial gainful activity was achieved. 
after the trial work period. And that's a whole nother lesson on that and a whole nother podcast for that. But um, typically people get, after the trial work period, typically people get seven years, nine months of extended Medicare coverage. Typically, there's always the outliers, but typically that's what people would receive for extended Medicare coverage. Now, after that period, you can still receive Medicare if you pay for Medicare Part A, and that is over $400 a month. But again, if you're if there's a prescription that you pay for with your Medicare Part D, that's and it pays two thousand dollars for this prescription, you have to have it to live, and you're earning let's say five grand a month, that might not be a deal breaker for you to go ahead and pay that over a little over four hundred dollars a month to keep your Medicare Part A. Okay, so there is an option to keep that. There is. And, um, yeah, there is, and sorry, my staff was trying to signal me something, but they're, they're all taken off for the day. But, um, yeah, there is an option to keep Medicare after the extended Medicare coverage, if they choose to pay for part A. And if they want to have the doctor visits, labs, they would also have to pay for part B as a boy as well. Okay, so I'm working. I've got everything squared away with the IRS. People know how much I'm making. I've got it kind of figured out how much I can make, how much I can't make, how much I'll be putting in my pocket. Are there any other potholes that we could fall into down the road that you should make us aware of um, before we go ahead and engage in in something like this? Yeah, um, if you're one of the lucky few, and I say lucky, if you're one of the lucky few that have Section 8 housing or subsidized housing, what you don't want to have happen is you earn enough money to transition off of benefits, but your rent has shot up through the roof from paying $350 before, now you're paying up over $1,000 for the full amount of rent, whatever that amount of rent is. So if you're one of the chosen few that has the subsidized housing and or Section 8, there is a program called the Earned Income Disregard you want to look into, and that allows you to uh, exclude all of your earnings for the first year. And then the second year, only half of your earnings would be counted against your HUD rent amount. So that would be another one to really pay attention to. If you have a Section 8 voucher or subsidized housing, make sure to check into the Earned Income Disregard Program. If your state has that, which it should, it is a federal program. But uh, check into that because the one thing you don't want is to have your transition off of benefits, which is great, but then your rent goes through the roof. That is not. And I will also say, Joe, when I work with clients, yeah, we want to go back to work. That's great. But, and this is a huge but, it has to make sense financially. 
if it does not make sense financially, then I am very, very honest and very transparent. I, and I let clients know all the time, you know what? You're earning $2,300 a month in SSDI benefits. You're looking to go to work earning $1,600 a month working full time. That does not make financial sense at all. So the money and the finances really have to line up. And if it doesn't, I'm very, very honest and transparent with everyone because I do not want to have anyone get into any financial harm at all. And so if it makes sense financially, that's great. But if it doesn't, that's great too. We'll figure it out to where it will make sense. And if it's something where you decide to only work part-time and keep your benefits, that's great. You're getting out of the house. You're getting some extra money. Your self-esteem will be impacted in a major way still, regardless if you transition off of benefits or not. It does not matter. You're getting out of the house. You're helping people. You're helping yourself. You're being there for others. And so that's a great thing. That's a win-win all the way around. And I think that the first step for anybody to take would be to speak with a benefit advisor just to make sure that they have a very clear understanding as to what they're earning today and be able to compare that to what they would like to earn if they were to return to work. Absolutely. The, the, because at the end of the day, the client, the claimant, the beneficiary, whatever you want to call yourself, whoever's receiving the benefits, they're in the driver's seat. So it, I implore you to get solid information. And the way to do that is by contacting the WIPA, W-I-P-S and Paul A program. Speak with the Community Work Incentive Coordinator or Benefit Planner and just start gathering information about, you know, looking around and seeing what, well, if I want to work and I want to earn, earn have earnings at this level, this is what's going to happen. If I want to work and have earnings at this level, this is what's going to happen. Play around with it. There's nothing wrong at all all with just looking over some numbers, gathering some information. Social Security is not going to flag you for gathering information. They're not. They have way too much to do. There's over 55 million people on benefits. There's only 65,000 representatives that work for Social Security. They are beyond overworked. And so there's nothing wrong with you gathering information to figure out what you want to do. And if you want to go back to work, great. If you don't, that's great too. There's nothing wrong with that as well. Um, so there's no right or wrong. There's you and what you decide to do. But at the end of the day, you know, it falls on your shoulders as well. But I always, um, because I've been on that side of the tracks where I was beating the hell out of myself, depressed. I've been there. I've had some dark, 
dark, dark days. We all have. And through work, I was able to find myself again. And, you know, that's one thing that maybe someone else can do as well. Doesn't matter if you transition off of benefits or not. If you do something and you find joy in it and it gets you out of the house, that's a beautiful thing. And that is recovery. Does not matter if you're in physical therapy, you're newly injured or been injured in a chair for 25 years. Does not matter. Recovery is recovery. And I do feel that employment plays a huge part in one's recovery. Regardless of how much you earn, does not matter. Employment plays a huge part in it, though, in a positive way. Well, Michael, you have provided great advice for people to contact WIPA first to get the information and get started. And I can't thank you enough for being a guest on the podcast. Your advice is great. Your story is incredibly inspiring to those, whether we're working or not working, we've suffered from a traumatic injury or not. Um, your story will be one that will stay with me and the listeners for a long time. And you gave us plenty of talking points for our future podcasts. So please come back as a guest and we can open up that, uh, that Pandora's box on some of the other topics that we touched upon here tonight. Absolutely. And I know your podcast is built around relationships as well. And I do know this for a fact. I never dated when I did not have a job. I did not have enough self-worth to even think that someone would choose me to date. Uh, working changed all of that. And I'm happily married now, post-injury. Yeah, I found my soulmate post-injury. And... um but when I became disabled, I did not want a relationship at all. Matter of fact, I broke a relationship off that I was in once I became uh, uh, disabled. I broke that relationship off because I felt like I was not worth uh, anyone's time. And I'm so glad that I found my wife and I am now. And um, so, yeah, and I will listen to your podcast as well because I know I can learn more about relationships moving forward in the future. And I would be glad to hop back on anytime you'd uh, invite me on to, to be another guest of yours. Well, Michael, we will follow up on the conversations that we've had today. And I would love to have you and your wife on as guests for the podcast that talks about relationships. I think you have a lot of uh, value add for that show and I'm looking forward to that in the future. Absolutely. Say when and it's done. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. You have a wonderful evening. You too, Joe. You take care. Thank you. Well, there we have it. Another episode on the interwebs. Hope we didn't break it this time. We are forever grateful to our guest for helping navigate the employment waters as it relates to SSI and SSDI. We will be dropping another episode in two weeks. Until then, 
please share and subscribe and we will see you then.